0: Good afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And today we're continuing our discussion that we had in the last half hour with Dr. Greg Borgon. Awfully glad that we can continue this study with him because it's a big topic. It's a difficult topic. We're talking uh, today about what the Bible says about hell. Is hell a real place? How is hell described in the Bible? Who is hell for? Are there levels of hell such as Dante's seven circles? And why does God send people to hell? And how Is eternity in hell a fair punishment for sin? Those are some of the questions we're going to be dealing with today. Greg, I have a quick question for you. What's hotter, the surface of the sun or the center of the earth? That is a great question. The answer is hell.
1: (laughs) Just so you know. I'm not going to make you think about it too long. (laughs) Well, and the, the first question we addressed, is hell a real place? And unequivocally, it is. And, and by the way, Scripture doesn't tell us the geographical or cosmological location of hell. It's not down. It's not up. Uh, when God says he sends Satan to hell, down to hell, it's not talking about a physical direction. So there's no indication of the actual location of hell. Hmm. But it does exist. So it's question number two, how is hell described in the Bible? Now, this is what gets a little scary for people, because when they read these uh, hyperboles of what hell is, these uh, metaphors, they often interpret it as actual, literal meaning of what it's saying. But let's, let's take a look at what the Bible says in terms of how it describes hell. Most broadly, hell is a place of conscious torment after death. There's no hyperbole there. More specifically, it's described as eternal fire. And there are passages in Scripture for each of these, by the way, Bill. Unquenchable fire, shame and everlasting contempt, a place where the fire is not quenched, a place of torment and fire, everlasting destruction. I'm quoting directly from the Bible here. The smoke of torment rises forever and ever, a lake of burning sulfur um uh where the wicked are quote tormented day and night forever and ever lake of fire outer darkness a prison a bottomless pit the abyss a lake a death um destruction everlasting torment a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth a grave compared to it's also compared to burning and darkness and it's associated with intense grief and horror so you have all of these metaphors mixed with, with narrative statements of what hell is. So what can we gather from that? Not what can to mention you do really drama? don't want to go there. Yeah. Well, if the one thing, it, the, the picture it does give is yeah. exactly that, Bill. That's not a place I'd want to go. No. So to be in hell is to be, and here's the essential, what we get from the Scripture. To be in hell is to be separated from God. Um, it's to be forever shot off. Shut off from light, according to 1 John 1, 5. Shut off from love, according to 1 John 4, 8. Shut off from joy, according to Matthew twenty five twenty three, And shut off from peace, according to Ephesians two fourteen. because God is the source of all those good things. And he will not be there. He will not be there. So to be in hell is to forever lose the chance to see God's face, to hear his voice, to experience his forgiveness or enjoy his fellowship. So think about fire for a minute. What does that create other than pain? If you're exposed to it, it also is tremendous heat that draws from you water from your your body. Um, it creates tremendous thirst. So I think some of the hyperbole about the fire represents the thirst that is never quenched, mm-hmm. the thirst of finally meeting and realizing. The creator you denied while you were living, and now you know is real, and now you have no exposure to him. So there's the thirst to be with the creator that you denied that really exists, and it's now impossible for you, not because of God, but because of the choices that we make. So to be in hell is to be forever separated mm-hmm. from God.
0: Now, Greg, just as a Christian, this rattles our bones, but if you're not a Christian and you say to a person who's not a believer, well, you're going to forever lose the chance to see God's face and enjoy his fellowship, they're going to go, well, I'm not doing it now. What do I care about when I die?
1: Well, that's just it. Either you bend your knee to the cross now, or you will bend it at a later time oh, I know. after death. Yeah. So if they can deny it today, all they want. But as we've talked about in previous programs, that every, every human soul is born embedded with the sense of the eternal that compels us to ask questions of why am I here, am I making any progress, or what I do have any lasting impact. So there's the sense of the eternal that we can deny, we can shunt aside, we can marginalize, we can put it on the peripheral of our life, we can deny it all we want, but it keeps coming up for us. And so the only way to live life on a horizontal plane devoid of any vertical relationship with God is to deny he exists. It justifies all of our actions then. And we can blithely say, well, I'll be, you know, when I die, I'm just going to be food for worms. And we say that comically until they get up to the point of their death. Mm -hmm. And then that's where you have people calling out for God. I heard one illustration when a car rolls on top of you in a ditch, the first thing that you cry out for is not your family, it's God. (laughs) And so, you know, we can deny it today, but there'll be a time when we can't deny it any further. So, the Bible tells us only what being in hell is like. It does not explicitly say what hell is or how it exactly functions. So, we can draw some conclusions. We should not read into the hyperbolic statements about what it is, other than what it might symbolize. So, we can get some sort of impression or idea, but we can't be um, adamant about Oh, it's going to be fire for the rest of our existence, literal fire. Think about what it creates. And so the whole idea is, again, it doesn't tell us what being in hell is like. It does not explicitly say what hell is or how it exactly functions. So the hyperbole is meant to express the gravity of hell, to paint a picture in human terms of a place, as we talked earlier, to be avoided at all costs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's how hell is described in the Bible. The third question, who is hell for? We may think we know the answer, but you might be surprised at the answer. Hell was originally intended for demonic beings, the devil and his angels. Hell is also a place for those who reject Christ, but originally was for these demonic beings and, and Satan himself. So the Bible is clear that there are two possible destinations for every human soul. Following a physical death, heaven or hell, according to Matthew, according to and to Luke, several passages in both of those books. Only the righteous inherit eternal life, and only the only way to be declared righteous before God is through faith in the death and resurrection of God's substitute, Jesus Christ. I think you should repeat that. That's so important. All right. Only the righteous.
0: Only the righteous inherit eternal life. Right. So it's not the goody
1: two-shoes out there. No. Because sometimes the righteous. people might hear that and go, oh, they're so high and mighty, thinking they're righteous. Yeah. And and the whole idea of being righteous in, in Christian terminology is being right and doing right. And the only way that can be done uh, by humans, is it, well, it's actually an impossibility. That's why we need the righteousness of Christ, which is imputed to us through uh, another uh, theological term, justification, where we're seen by God through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Right. And so by default, we are righteous in his eyes because of what Christ did for us. But we're not righteous in, our, in and of ourselves. So again, only the righteous inherit eternal life. And only way to be declared righteous before God is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John three sixteen through 18 and Romans 10, 9. So the souls of the righteous go directly into the presence of God. Even though their bodies have not been joined back mm-hmm. with the soul yet, for those who do not receive Jesus as Savior, death means everlasting punishment, according to Second Thessalonians one eight and nine. Upon death, the souls of unbelievers go to a temporary place, awaiting final bodily re- uh, resurrection at the final judgment, the great what's called the Great White Throne of judgment. Mm-hmm. So, hell, as a place of punishment, is eternal, according to. According to Jude one thirteen and Matthew 25.46. There is no biblical support for the notion that after death, people get another chance to repent. I'll say that again. There is absolutely no biblical support for the notion that after death, people get another chance to repent. Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear that everyone dies physically, and after that comes judgment. Period. End of drill. Christians have always been judged and sentenced. I've already been judged and sentenced. In other words, Jesus took that sentence upon himself. Our sin is what brought him to the cross to begin with. Our sins nailed him to the cross. So he paid our penalty. Our sin becomes his, and his righteousness becomes ours. Isn't that beautiful? His sin. Our sin becomes his, and his righteousness becomes ours when we believe in him. (coughs) Because, excuse me, because he took our... Just punishment. We need not fear ever being separated from him again, according to Romans eight twenty nine and 30. The judgment for unbelievers is still to come. So Second Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So the misery of hell will consist of not only physical torture of some form or, or uh, uh, some fashion, but the agony of being cut off from every avenue of happiness. So God is the source of all good things, according to John one seventeen. To be cut off from God is to forfeit all exposure to anything good. So hell will be a state of perpetual sin, yet those suffering there will possess full understanding of sin's horrors. Remorse, guilt, and shame will be unending. They can deny it today, Bill. They can resist the whole concept of sin today, but when they face uh, eternity, all of a sudden the truth uh, comes in and kind of hits them like a cold um, you know, cup of water. It just startles them, and they're forced to acknowledge the truth that they've been denying all this time. So there's no longer to be any deception about the goodness of man. To be separated from God is to be ever shut off from the light, from joy, from peace, because God is the source of all those good things. So, while the spirits of those regenerated by God's Holy Spirit will abide forever with God in a perfected state, the opposite is true of those in hell. None of the goodness of God will exist in them. Whatever good they may have thought they represented on earth will be shown to be selfish, lustful, adulterous, um, and uh, as adulterous as it was. Man's ideas of goodness will be measured against the perfection of God's holiness and be found severely lacking. Those in hell have forever lost the chance to see God's face, hear his voice, experience his forgiveness, or enjoy his fellowship. So to be ever separated from God is the ultimate punishment. Mm. Now think of the people you are praying
0: for and the people that you need to say, I have to reach out and talk to my loved one, my family member, my friend about Jesus. This is so important. Uh, Greg, thanks uh, for this this study. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more. Uh, Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. Heartofawarrior.org is his website. We'll be right back. I've got happy music talking about hell. It's not an easy subject, and I can understand Greg why people don't want to talk about it. No, because the true. teaching on it is is um, it's it's very challenging. Pretty stark. It's very stark. Yeah. So uh, we have been going through a number of questions. Uh, Doctor Greg Borgon is my guest, and he has been covering uh, quite a number of questions that have cropped up in his life and have been he's been asked, and he's had these questions himself over the years. And the questions are: Is hell a real place? How is hell described in the Bible? who is hell for? Are there levels of hell, such as Dante's seven circles? Why does God send people to hell? And how is eternity in hell a fair punishment for sin? So we've gone through the first uh, uh, three. Now we're going to ask the question is, are there levels of hell? Are there circles or levels of hell? Because I've heard people say the expression, you know, there's, there's a special place in hell for that person. Yeah,
1: Like, yeah. oh, what do you know about hell and this special place you speak of? Yeah, exactly. So hell is indeed depicted as a place of gradated punishment, according to Matthew 11, uh, 20 through 24, and Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, and Revelation 20, 12 through 13. So the Bible does suggest different degrees of punishment in hell. So what the gradations or degrees are actually is not described in the Bible. Suffice it to say, they're a sign based on our life prior to death. So um, it's not that, you know, like Dante's Inferno, there are, there are nine different circles of, of hell. Um, don't know how many uh, places there are, but they are differentiated, and they are you go to a certain place based on how you've lived your life. Um, uh, apart from God. So we know that to be true because of these passages that are uh, ample proof that that indeed is the case. So uh, question number five, why does God send people to hell? So the Bible says that God created hell for Satan and the wicked angels who rebelled against him, but there are people in hell also, according to Matthew twenty-five forty-one. So both angelic beings and human beings are in hell for the same reason, sin, Mm-hmm. uh Romans 8 or 623 so God himself is the standard for what is right good and moral if it were not for God being the standard of moral perfection created beings would have nothing to measure themselves against so it's kind of like that uh plumb line that determines when you're off uh you know bearing with something mm-hmm. or that level that you use in building something so, God's perfect holiness acts as that standard, that rule, that plumb line that we measure our, ourselves again. So, again, he's the standard for what is right, good, and moral. So, if God is perfectly righteous, then anything that falls short of, of that said perfection is sinful. And every human being who ever lived since Adam's fall from grace has committed sin, according to Romans 3.23. Because Adam's sin, the entire human race now has a sinful nature, according to Romans 5.12, which says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Mm-hmm. But people do not go to hell because of Adam's sin. They go to hell because of their own sin, which they freely choose, according to James 1, or uh, James chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. I think it if you'd read that for us, Bill, yeah. that'd be helpful. Let
0: no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers.
1: So we're born with this pre uh, uh conceived notion uh, not only of sin being a part of us but actually a physical part of us. We're born with a bias. We're born with a desire. So we a desire. stand condemned. Yeah. So we stand condemned. We're, it's interesting to me, you don't have to teach a baby to be bad. You do have to teach a baby as they grow older to be good. Right. And so <laughs> that's true of, of us as adults. Um, there's There's plenty of examples of that. So since God is eternal— immutable, and infinite, and all sins are fundamentally against God, God has decreed the just punishment for sin um, must be eternal. Matthew 25, 46, there's another aspect to consider, which is that God also created people to live eternally. So when someone commits a sin against another person, that offended person has been eternally wrong. Mm-hmm. And there must be some satisfaction for that. There yeah. must be some justice for that. So God, therefore, has deemed all who commit sin uh, will go to hell because they have failed to meet his righteous standard. They have broken his law of moral perfection. So it isn't that God is sending them to hell. They are going to hell because of their sin. So if God does not send people to hell for breaking his laws, it would be said that God is not just. In other words, if if there wasn't a hell, then is God really just? Or mm-hmm. are people just going to get away with it? A good analogy is a court of law with a judge and a lawbreaker. Uh, A just judge will always convict the person who has been found guilty, a just judge. If that judge does not pursue justice for the crime, he would not be a just judge. So, however, the good news is that God is also merciful. In his rich mercy, he made a way for sinners to avoid the punishment of hell by trusting in the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ. For Christians, the penalty of sin has been removed and placed upon Christ on the cross. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, God is still just, the sin is punished, yet he is also merciful to all who believe. Mm. That's so so uh, encouraging about how
0: merciful God is. Yeah.
1: A, a quick illustration. I mean, if, it, for instance, we've all had this, probably this experience of a cop coming up behind us with his lights flashing, and we know we were speak, speeding.
0: Speak for yourself. And we pull Craig.
1: over. All right, I'll just speak for myself, because we know that it never happens <laughs> never to Never happened to me. Um or to Rosie. <laughs> All right, so the idea is, is the guy gets out of his car. He's got this pad, and he comes to the car, and we're, we know and we, I, we've had it. We're, we're caught. And we roll down the window, and he asks for our, our license and our registration. He gives it. He goes back to the car. We don't know what he's doing back there. He's looking at a screen. We're wondering if there's any unconfessed sin <laughs> <laughs> or warrant out for us that we're unaware of. And he comes back and he says, you were speeding, weren't you? And so here's the crux. Do you tell him the truth and say, well, I I didn't realize it, or do you just fess up? Well, yes, I've been speeding. Well, I'm going to give you a warning this time. And he walks back to his car, and we can't believe it. That's God's justice and his mercy. Mm -hmm. And so you can appreciate justice because of the power that God has to um, deal with our sin and yet the mercy he gives in the face of that sin, that makes the mercy all the more significant. Mm -hmm. Now, we have one last quick question. How is eternity in hell a fair punishment for sin? Now, this is an issue that bothers many people who have an incomplete understanding of three things, the nature of God, the nature of man, and the nature of sin. So, as fallen sinful beings, the nature of God is a difficult concept for us to grasp. We tend to see God is kind, merciful being whose love for us kind of overrides and overshadows all of his other attributes. Of course, God's loving and kind and merciful, but he is first and foremost holy and righteous mm-hmm. God. Yeah. So holy is he that he cannot tolerate sin. He is a God whose anger burns against the wicked and disobedient. And you already said that sin is eternal, so there must be a punishment for it. So humanity is corrupted by sin. That sin is always directed by God. And if we confess our sin and place our faith in Christ, Asking for God's forgiveness based on Christ's sacrifice, we're saved, forgiven, cleansed, and promised an eternal home in heaven and not hell.
0: Amen. That's outstanding. Thank you for this challenging topic. You did it, uh, you handled it well. And I'm going to definitely, as I always do when you come on, go back and listen to it a second time, sometimes a third. But Dr. (laughs) Greg Borgon has been our guest. He's at heartofawarrior.org if you want to check out his website. He's written a number of books and also. I encourage you to pass this on to a friend who might be struggling with the whole concept of hell. Jesus did speak about it more than he did heaven. And we do want to uh, let our friends and loved ones know that we don't want them there. We want them to, and we want to pray for them and pray that they come to receive uh, Jesus as their savior. So after that, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about dogs. I can hardly wait. Be right back. Figured after the last hour talking to Dr. Greg Borgon, I think we we have this wonderful opportunity to shift into something that is absolutely going to be a blast to talk about, and that is the true story of extraordinary assistance dogs. Wonder dogs is what Mo Moore calls them. She is a the founder and executive director of Assistance Dogs of Hawaii. There's nothing I don't like about that sentence. Dogs Hawaii. And the assistance dogs Northwest uh, Mo and her husband Will live on Maui, and with their two dogs Sadie and Samson, and a constant stream of future heroes in training. She's written a, a book called "Wonder Dogs: True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs." Mo, welcome.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, well, you've you've had quite a story. Um, I, I first of all, tell me about your your love for dogs. When did that all start?
3: Well, when I was a little girl, I loved all kinds of animals, but especially dogs. The only problem was I was allergic to everything. (laughs) So I wasn't allowed to have a dog, but I was always trying to befriend stray dogs in the neighborhood and convince them to follow me home.
0: Well, that's... um, (laughs) I'm sorry you were allergic to them. So you went through uh, a health scare. Tell us about that. What happened and uh, what... What did you pray that changed the direction of your life?
3: Well, when I was 39 years old, I had been working as a CPA and had my own practice. And, you know, things were going along pretty well. And then I had a health scare where the um, doctor, they found a, a very large tumor and um, told me that I might have six months to live. So that was really a wake-up call for me, and it took a few days to get the results. And during that time, I just prayed and asked God if I, if I had another chance that I would um, do what I had always dreamed of, which was training dogs to help people in need.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you, you write in your book that dogs learn our spoken language, which is so different than their own. Do they also read our expressions?
3: Yes. Yeah, so dogs communicate primarily through body language, and um, they are experts at reading us. They read our facial expressions and our body language. So um, we have taught dogs for people who are have limited mobility and are also nonverbal, To understand sign language and even complete sentences in sign language.
0: Mm -hmm. So, how many different cues do some of your your dogs learn, and and what are a few of these cues?
3: Well, they learn over ninety different cues. Wow! And um, some of them, you know, are basic obedience uh, cues that other people use with their dogs, like sit and stay and come here, and then. Some things are more complicated, like getting a drink out of the refrigerator and, and bringing it to someone, or going and finding help if someone has fallen out of their wheelchair.
0: So they are amazing animals. And when I see them when they're with their little service vests on, I, I stand in awe of them because they're so cute and I want to run up and pet <laughs> them. But I do have that understanding that they're working, so leave them alone, or if you want to, you can always ask the owner if it's all right to meet their dog. Uh, what, what do you suggest is the best uh, etiquette for that?
3: Well, I think it's best not to ask and not to um, approach the team or ask to pet the dog just because it's so important for the dogs to stay focused on their partner. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their partner's life can depend upon that, and I know for the dogs we train, they're all Labrador retrievers or Golden retrievers, and they're they're pretty social. Like they, um, we don't want them to start seeking attention from strangers if that's what they're expecting.
0: Yeah, now I'm feeling all guilty because I I have a tendency <laughs> of wanting to meet their dogs, and I now I'm feeling like I I've not done it correctly.
3: Well, no, it's okay to say hi, and um, that is an added benefit of having the service dogs. A lot of people say that that's a social icebreaker for Mm -hmm. them, and some people say the dogs even make their wheelchair disappear so that people see them. Yes. As long as you're, um, you know, speaking to the person and not the dog, it's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's the dog's fault, too, for being so darn cute
3: they can't help it.
0: Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, I know you just, just didn't wake up one day and say, I want to train dogs to help people with disabilities. Um, so what what kind of training did you go through that you're able to turn around and train these dogs?
3: Yeah, so I had done a lot of obedience training with dogs just growing up. And um, I w- went back to school after my health scare and uh, Went to a school in California where I studied uh, to train assistance dogs, and I did an apprenticeship with a guide dog school before starting my own program here in Hawaii uh, 22 years ago.
0: That's awesome. So um, when you train these dogs, I I would imagine one of the hardest days and also one of the more satisfying days is when a new person gets a trained dog, but you have to let that little pup go.
3: Well, it is. It can be bittersweet, especially the day that we say goodbye (laughs) to the dogs um, because we do get so attached to them. They're really like part of our ohana, as we say in Hawaii, but um, it's just so rewarding to see the difference that they make in their partner's life. So for us, it's just, you know, that's the best day when that new partnership starts and um, they begin their lives together.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mo Moore is my guest. She's written a book called Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. Mo, has there been uh, dogs that have saved lives in the book? Do you talk about that?
3: Yeah. So over the last 22 years of training these dogs, we've had several that have saved their partner's life. And um, a few of these are highlighted in the book. Um, One of them that comes to mind is a beautiful golden retriever named Freedom. And he went to a woman on Oahu named Melanie. She's a Hawaiian woman and was in the military, and she became disabled and uh, was using a power wheelchair. And she was home alone and cooking um, dinner for her family one afternoon when the stove caught on fire. And as she tried to put it out, you know, the flames got bigger and her hair caught on fire, Mm. ended up falling over and her 300-pound power wheelchair was on top of her as she lay on the kitchen floor. And uh, Freedom, you know, came to her, and she uh, said, Freedom, go find the phone. And he ran throughout the house looking for her phone and brought it back. And at that time, you know, the kitchen was on fire, and it was all filled with smoke and the smell of burnt hair. And she dialed 911, And when the fireman came, Freedom went to the front door. She had a tug rope on it so he could open the door Mm. for her. But he let the fireman in and then ran to her and saved the day.
0: That story is so sweet. I mean, clearly she could have died so quickly.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, she really said, you Mm -hmm. know, before, before she felt that wet nose on her arm, you know, she thought that that was it when she was stuck there and unable to move. But what really touched her and surprised her the most is um, while they were waiting for the firemen to arrive, you know, freedom had no idea they were coming, but he lay right by her side as the room filled with more smoke and Mm. got hotter. And she said, she felt like he would never have left.
0: All right, Mo, now you're killing us. (laughs) Now you're killing us. All right. So um, yeah, those are very touching stories. And, You know, I do hear about service dogs that are able to almost detect certain uh, problems with people with disabilities. If they've got, um, you know, uh, insulin or blood sugar or some of these things, is that true or is that, are those stories that have taken on lives of their own?
3: No, that's definitely true. Dogs have such an amazing sense of smell. Um, It's over a hundred thousand times stronger than ours. So they can detect parts per trillion. So... One thing that's really exciting to me is this um kind of new field of medical biodetection and how dogs can detect very early stages of different diseases like diabetes as you said or Parkinson's disease, um cancer, infections. It's uh it's really amazing and we've had the opportunity to publish research studies about this and we're currently teaching dogs to detect early stages of COVID-19.
0: Mm, wow. Well, if their smell is so good, why do they smell the most disgusting things?
3: <laughs> I don't know about that, but they do love, yes, yeah. to roll in things that um, that smell bad. That's
0: yeah, that's true. So um, <laughs> y- you say that uh, dogs have other ways of communicating with us besides the human voice. I, I find that so fascinating. What are some of these?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, just as I was saying earlier, you know, through body language and through expression and through movement, like they are always trying to communicate with us. And uh, when they have an owner who recognizes that and they have two-way communication, they really love that. So it can be something simple like they're standing over their water bowl and glancing at you and it's empty. mm mm-hmm. Communicate. They're thirsty, or they go to the door and need to be let outside. Things like that. But, um, but yeah, they're experts at reading us um, because their survival has kind of depended upon us for thousands of years.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it is when they when you learn little nuances with a dog, and you you start to teach them their obedience training and their. Are there ever any tricks that you teach a dog that are that's going to be a service dog, or is that something that other dog owners do, teach their dog a trick?
3: Oh, you mean just tricks for fun? Yeah,
0: tricks for fun, or, or these dogs have to be all work all the time.
3: Well, no, they definitely get to have fun. I have Sadie laying at my feet here right now, and she got to go to the beach this morning. So they have lots of time to play and goof off and, you know, just be a dog, but... I think they really love having purpose and having a job and um you know knowing they're helping their partner.
0: Yeah. So the the question now begs mo what uh, happened to your allergies?
3: Well, so when I was uh I think maybe 8 years old or so I started getting allergy shots. Okay. And I think and Just having dogs around because my mom finally let me have um, a little poodle mix that was hypoallergenic, and after that I had one dog after another and, um, yes, was thankfully cured of my allergy to dogs, although I'm still allergic to everything else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Momora is my guest. She's written a book called Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs, and the cover is The Cutest Dog Ever. What dog is that on your cover?
3: Oh, that's Tucker. When he was ten weeks old, he's a beautiful golden retriever puppy. He looked just oh, like a stuffed animal when he, he was that age.
0: He's absolutely beautiful. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back, and more on uh, Wonder Dogs, and more, more in just a minute. Mo Moore is my guest. She's written a book called Wonder Dogs, the True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. And Mo, I'm curious about the criteria to graduate, to become um, a service dog. And I've, I hear about some that really don't make it through the training or they were dropped out or they got kicked out. What happens, you know, because we hear someone that say, well, we got a dog and it didn't make it through you know, training school, so we got it. But uh, what happens to some of these dogs that make it and others that don't? Is it based on their personality or their, their, their unwillingness to be trained or what is it?
3: Right, that's a great question. And first, we don't call them dropouts. The politically correct term is a career change.
2: <laughs> I like that. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, the um, the criteria is very strict for the dogs to graduate. They have to pass a lot of different um, health screening, and temperament screening, and really have like the the work work ethic to um, to make it as an assistance dog. So. If they, say, don't pass their hip x-ray or maybe they get startled by loud noises, you know, it could be anything like that um, that causes them to be released from the program and placed in a pet home.
0: Mm-hmm. And, Mo, I'm curious about your thoughts on service dogs that are highly trained and very critical for people with disabilities and then some of the uh, more lenient Policies we see with people claiming they have, you know, emotional support animals on planes and things like that. I was curious about your, your take on that.
3: Yeah, so the FAA is no longer allowing the emotional support animals on airplanes. I think there were a lot of um, problems with that. And while some are legitimate, there unfortunately were some people taking advantage of the law that is sure. there for the people that really need it. And I was mentioning to you about Melanie and Freedom. Um, She was actually at a restaurant with Freedom after she had completely lost her sight. So she was in the wheelchair and blind. And as they were leaving the restaurant, Freedom was attacked by a fake service dog. Oh, wow. Just in that one moment, she lost her independence. She never went out on her own again after that. So people don't realize, you know, the impact it can have for the um, people that really need their dogs in public.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Mo, as a trainer, how do you learn to understand each dog and help them reach their full potential?
3: Well, you know, each dog is born with their own personality, I believe, you know, just like people. Mm -hmm. And um, so we really get to know the dogs. They live with us, and um, we have a small program. The dogs are not kept in kennels. So we really get to understand what are each one's strengths and um, what type of people they like. And based on that and the skills that they have, we try to direct their career paths and even their, because we could call it higher education, you know, when we're doing the advanced stages of training, Will decide would they be better suited as a service dog for an individual with a disability, or perhaps work at a children's hospital full time with a child psychologist. Um, We also have dogs who work in child advocacy centers and prosecutors' offices as uh, courthouse dogs.
0: Yeah, that that is very uh, valuable. I see them in airports once in a while just to make people smile and. They're they're um, always the center of attention when they're yes. in places like hospitals or airports or um, when they're being made available for the public to enjoy.
3: Yeah, it's really amazing how no matter what the setting or the need, that dogs just immediately cheer people up. I've seen it in cancer clinics and um, veterans' homes and really anywhere there's human suffering. I think dogs can help.
2: Yeah, I
0: would agree. So if you are uh, have a disability and you would really benefit from a service dog, how does a person go about obtaining one, especially if they don't maybe have uh, the funds to, to have it? How does that work?
3: Yeah, so a lot of accredited programs like ours do not charge for the dogs or the lifetime follow-up support. So I would recommend for people to go online um, to Assistance Dogs International, and that website will list the programs by state and the types of dogs that the different programs uh, train. So that's a great resource.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Sometimes when I will encounter a service dog, maybe at a restaurant or something, it appears that the dog is super low energy. And you and you wonder, wow, you just seem so um, <laughs> quiet and tame. Because sometimes you think of labs or uh, as being rambunctious, uh, but these dogs are so uh, calm. Do, are they simply trained that way, or are, are do they have lower energy? Or
3: yeah, that's a great question. I know the labs that I grew up with were hunting dogs of my dad's and uncles, and they were very high energy. Yeah. But um, the Labradors that have been bred for this type of work, you know, for guide dogs or service dogs, are generally uh, calmer and lower energy because they're just easier to handle throughout the day. And they're still happy to, um, you know, to work when they need to. But um, they're definitely what we call the lower aroused type of dog.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mo, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about medical biodetection. I think because there's um, that a fascinating aspect of, of these kinds of animals in people's homes.
3: Yes, it, it's amazing you know what they're capable of and how they're able to help people with diabetes to alert them uh, to low blood sugar. Um, I mentioned the um, COVID detection that we're doing right now. Um, just yesterday, we were doing a test with different samples from people, and they're just um, skin odor samples, mm-hmm. swab on the neck, and the dogs were able to detect the presence of COVID-19 days before the onset of symptoms and before the PCR test could pick up the virus. So I think there's so much potential in this field for dogs to help provide early diagnosis for all kinds of diseases.
0: Mm-hmm. Mo, I'd love for you to share one of your favorite stories from your book, Wonder Dogs.
3: Oh my gosh. Well there are so many, but um one of them, the the book opens in the first chapter with uh with my husband and I taking Tucker to the children's hospital when he was just a puppy. And We flew over to Oahu, and it was Christmas Day, and we wanted to cheer up the kids. And it was just amazing to see the difference that he made for everyone, you know, the patients and the staff, but especially one little girl who was um, critically ill and not expected to make it. And uh, it was, I get choked up thinking about it, but... um, Anyway, she, uh, her mom placed her hand on Tucker's head and was kind of stroking her daughter's fingers over his ears, and she started moving, and she hadn't responded to anything in days, and um, from then on, like she, you know, regained consciousness and woke back up, and she's currently in college right now. So, um, <laughs> what? Yeah. Seeing that, yes. So she was one of only three people to survive the disease that she had um, in the United States. So it really was a Christmas miracle. And I believe, you know, each dog has their purpose. And seeing that, we ended up placing Tucker at that same children's hospital a year later when he graduated. And during his 10 year career, he helped over 10,000 hospitalized children.
0: That is so cool. There's also a story in your book, Miss Money Penny. Tell me about her.
3: Oh, yes, Penny. She is a, a black lab and very sweet, very calm. Um, she was matched with a little boy on Lanai who had had a near drowning accident. His name was Mikey, and he was eight years old when his family applied to get a dog. And I honestly wasn't really sure, you know, what a dog could do to help him because his disability was so severe. You know, he was completely paralyzed. He was um, blind. He was deaf. But he had his sense of touch. And we ended up placing Penny with him, and she could detect seizures Mm. when he would have seizures, and that was really a big help for her parents, or for his parents, you know, to be able to rely on her, alerting them. But she really ended up changing his life. Like, he, they got out in the community more, they met other families, they went to Disneyland, mm. <laughs> they did all kinds of things. And um, and Mikey, he had this laugh, like a very unique laugh, and he just started laughing and smiling so much more with Penny by his side.
0: That is so... such heartwarming stories i appreciate uh, mo spending time with us today and this uh book is called wonder dogs true stories of extraordinary assistance dogs and i tell you the picture of tucker on the front and on the first couple of pages is was worth the price <laughs> of the book it's the cutest pictures ever and uh i i i hope that uh, people would have a chance to learn a little bit more about assistance dogs and that they would um truly come to appreciate how we should deal with them because I've learned something from you today that I should not a- approach them. I, they're working, and uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me today.
3: Well, thank you so much, and I hope that the book inspires people just to follow their dreams and um, overcome challenges the way so many of the people in the book have Um Yes, the people I get to meet and work with are so inspiring, and I'm just so thankful to share their stories.
0: Yeah, it's been a delight having you. Have a wonderful uh, day and enjoy your your day in Hawaii. I'm in Minnesota, so (laughs) I can pretend that I'm really happy to talk to you, but um, maybe I'm not.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mo. Thank you.
0: You bet. Mo Moore has been my guest. Her book is Wonder Dogs, True Stories of Extraordinary Assistance Dogs. I appreciate you spending time with me today. I've loved it. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. I hope you have a great night. And I'm excited to uh, get back into the Old Testament study tomorrow. We're going to talk uh, about Job tomorrow, which I'm looking forward to. So I hope you can spend time with me tomorrow. If you missed any of today's show, we had a challenging hour with Dr. Greg Borgon talking about hell. And if you want to go to the website and check it out, I know I'm going to go listen to it again tonight because there was lots in there and I need to get my Bible open and take notes. So have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.